Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Welcome to episode 146 of the podcast, everybody, with me, Dan Prosser, and Andrew Frankel, my co-host. We're splitting this week's episode down the middle. Um, We begin by talking about the worst supercars we've ever driven. They do exist. Quite a few of them, actually. And then later on, we're catching up with Paul Darville from Bonhams um, to talk about the highlights in Bonhams' forthcoming auction in Paris later this week. Uh, So please enjoy the episode. First things first, Andrew, I just want to talk about last week's episode, a daft yeah. game for petrol heads. Yeah, we need um, more. We, we need to do more, but we need to make improvements. Um, now, I, I dreamt up the game in 20 minutes or something, the, the Sunday evening before we actually recorded it. Um, yes. And so I think we have something. It was quite fun. Lots of people have been in touch to say they enjoyed it. And here are some ways it can be improved. So we've got some good ideas for making it fundamentally a better game. Um, one of those is one chap. Sorry, I didn't make a note of your name, but someone got in touch to say they're a bit of a games nerd. Um, and one important aspect of a good game is what he called incomplete information. Um, and the, his point there was that we shouldn't come up with 10 driving scenarios. We should come up with 20 and only draw half of those out of the hat um, so that it makes it, I guess, a bit less predictable um, we don't know what's coming. So a few yeah, of you have been it, in touch. It also means the dice aren't massively loaded in your favour yeah. from the start because you know exactly what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. So it makes it more fair, less predictable. Yeah. Um, so we've had a few ideas like that for making it a better, more robust game. Um, and this is great. You know, we'll, we'll do another one soon with these improvements. Um, and it, it's brilliant because, you know, when we're struggling for a podcast topic... Um, which happens sometimes because we do this every week. Surely not. Um, we can play a game and we can rope in some of our contributors from time to time, play the game with them. Um, it's good, isn't it? I think we just keep doing it. Um, so this week we are, this is a two-part episode. We're talking about uh, the worst supercars that we've ever driven. Yes. Um, and later on we're going to talk to um, Paul from Bonhams about their forthcoming sale in the next few days. There's some superb stuff um up for auction um but let's talk worst supercars this is your idea i think probably you will have driven more crap supercars than i have um there are a few modern ones that i can think of but do you is it fair to say that most of the world's crap supercars are older than they are newer well probably because there was a time wasn't there when Simply the fact that a car looked far, looked, you know, was fast and looked amazing kind of covered a whole... It was a decent enough excuse to cover a whole litany of flaws. Like, you couldn't see out of it, yeah. and they didn't ride very well, and they broke down a lot. And, you know, increasingly, that's no longer the case. Um, but there's also the counter-argument, which says that, you know, as cars improve, which they unquestionably have, so should our expectations of them, you know, rise by a commensurate amount. So, um <sighs> Yeah, I mean, I guess most of them will be 
older um but i would i i i certainly wouldn't ever dream of saying that there's no such thing as a as a rubbish supercar anymore um yeah, because it's it's absolutely not the case um but I, I suggest we start and see how we get on okay um i've got a handful on my list not too many um but give us one of yours i mean what era are you choosing for your first one you can all, you, you you can almost um Okay, well, I mean, I, I, well, so, okay, the first one I'm going to go for is, um, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, um, and, you know, Harry, who's got one of these things, often um, sort of points out that uh, they're not all like that, but a Lamborghini Countach. And I say <laughs> this only because it's the car that I kind of grew up with. It was the ultimate yeah. sort of, you know, if you're a child of the 70s and the 80s, as I am, um, it was the ultimate thing to have on your bedroom wall. Um, I can't remember a Countach ever going in a test up against, uh, you know, a Ferrari or an Aston or a Porsche or whatever, and not winning it. Um, and uh, I got to drive one once, and it was just, it was just rubbish. <laughs> wow! So we're we're going in hard, aren't we? I mean, if the Countach figures on this list, there's okay. nothing sacred because that is for a lot of people. The supercars. Okay, so I, I, I need to qualify. I need to qualify in two ways. Um, firstly, um, it was an LP500, um, so it was quite an early car. Um, and, you know, the, the last cars, I understand because I've not driven one. The Quattro Vavoles, the QVs, um, are massively better cars. Um, and I completely uh, accept, you know, the judgment of those who've driven them and who own them. Uh, that's the case. The second thing, as I suspect, the car I drove was a really bad example anyway. You just don't know what you're driving, do you? You just don't know whether they are um, absolutely representative of what they are or whether they're just, you know, really poorly maintained. And I suspect the one that I drove was in the latter, in the latter category, but I can only report as I found. Mm. Um, you know, some stuff won't change. The fact that it was just like really cut, really cramped, and you couldn't see out of it, and the ergonomics were a joke. Um, you know, it doesn't matter whether the car's in good or bad condition. That's going to be the same, come what may. Um, and the other stuff. I mean, the handling scared me a bit. It just. Oh, I can well imagine that. It just felt not brilliantly developed certainly not the sort of thing i felt like sort of skidding around a bit it came on those massive um what there were three four five thirty five section pirellis and something much narrower at the back and, it, and and i seem to remember it just it, it understeered a lot um but more than anything it just wasn't very fast mm. yeah um so i've uh, yeah how much do, off the top of your head how much power do you know is it 400 something like that no i think those are the later ones so i think i think a qv um is about well on paper is about 455 horsepower i think these were sort of late 300s but they weren't very heavy cars uh it certainly should have if you know the lamborghini figures of the day um were an accurate reflection of what the engine was producing but either they weren't an accurate reflection of what the engine was producing or that engine wasn't producing one of the two because it didn't feel like anything like that strong and i suspect there's probably a bit of both going on we all know that you know ferrari and uh, and Lamborghini in the 70s and the 80s were, how can I put this? Um, they always sort of accentuated the positive as far as their power outputs were concerned. Um, and I suspect this one probably didn't even have as much power as it was meant to have, let alone what it was claimed to have. So, um, yeah, so I feel a bit bad about putting it forward. Um, but I guess because it is one of those sort of... Um, iconic cars um uh, i i thought i'd just sort of you know get it out there straight away i've not driven a countach i've driven uh, an lm002 which has the countach engine clearly yeah. a very different car much heavier car but i was <laughs> amazed at how fast it didn't feel <laughs> yeah it wasn't yeah. you know it's not a fast car and so that engine i mean it's got this this stonking great v12 in it but it doesn't go that hard no. Um, and I can well imagine that even in something like a Countach, much lighter, much lower kind of car, probably still not wildly accelerative. But then we are used to modern cars that are so ridiculously fast. Yeah. Um, so it, it does sound like you need to. We need to get you in a a better example of a Countach. Yes. Um, and that's a story in itself, isn't it? You having another go in the Countach and seeing if you can actually discover exactly why um, people love them so much. Yeah. Um, 
So we'll try and do that this year. I'd really, really love to. I would really love to. I'd love to come back on this podcast and go, guys, I was wrong. I get it now. I get it now. I understand why everyone went nuts about these cars. Because I've driven the other cars that it was kind of up against at the time. I mean, the Ferrari Boxer, which is, you know, the one that was always going up against the Countach and always losing to the Countach. Um, And I think it got quite a bad reputation as a result. And I've driven, actually, I've driven a Boxer, which I don't think was a very good Boxer. It was a Carburetta 512, which is probably the one not to have. Um, and, you know, I think it was probably a reasonable example. It probably wasn't as bad an example as the Countach was, but there was certainly nothing, you know, I didn't want one of these cars you get into it and think, wow, this feels like a new car. Um, but I quite liked it, mm. you know, because you could see out of it and it wasn't completely insane. Um, and it felt to me, it, it felt to me like a supercar. Uh, insofar as it was something you could, a car that rather than just sort of show off to your mates and go oh, look at me I've got an amazing looking car you could do a distance in it you could put stuff in it it rode well um, and it had this amazing V12 engine which did feel powerful um, and all sorts of things about it um, which I really really liked in a way that I didn't with the Countach so uh, yes if there was mm. any way I would love to drive a really good Countach and come back on here and go I got it wrong Normally when we say that, at least one person will get in touch. <laughs> so hopefully <laughs> someone's listening and the offer will come our way uh, to be revisited. Well, okay, I'm going to keep it on the Lamborghini thing then. Um, and my first nomination, I've never really got on with the Aventador. Other than okay. the SVJ. Yes, um, I agree. Actually, I've only driven the SVJ Roadster, but I've driven two examples, one in North Wales, and I just thought it was one of the most thrilling road cars I'd ever driven. I stepped out of it shaking like a leaf. Um, and then I drove another one um, at Lamborghini's Ice Driving School uh, up in the Italian Alps, um, which is a ridiculous p- place to drive a car like that, but it was fantastic fun. Uh, and so I think the SVJ Roadster is a superb car, but every other example of the Aventador is just a bit frustrating. They feel enormous and heavy, flat-footed. You know, you, it's very... And th- there's no real sense of connection. It's very difficult to feel like you're getting right on top of the car mm. like you trust that it's right there beneath you and when you drive one um alongside a, a mclaren or a mid-engine ferrari and those cars give you so much confidence and you have so much faith in them and you feel like you can take them by the scruff and really chuck them at the road you realize yeah. how far short the aventador um you're, you're, you're absolutely right I, I mean i wrote the first aventador road test for for autocar um, so I drove a lot in the UK. Before that, I'd gone down to Vallelunga, where they launched it. Um, mm. And oh, the, I remember the gearbox, that, you know, that robotized yeah. manual gearbox. I mean, it was so vicious when you put it in whatever it was, Corsa mode, that there was a quick corner, which you had to take, a, which was flat, but you had to take an up change through Vallelunga. And it would destabilize the car because there was mm. such a bang in that. And, you know, and it's, you can't see out the thing properly. And, you know, if you compare that to particularly to McLarens and also to Ferraris, I think that's, and it's, they're such big, wide things. You can't drive them with any confidence. No, you can't. But the SVJ, though, I do agree. That was, that was actually pretty wondrous mm. um, because it was so fast and there was such a sense of occasion. And it just felt together. And this is not the first example of this, um, of, of Lamborghini doing this. Um, you, you're too young to have driven it, but the Diablo was exactly the same. You know, a, a, a standard four-wheel drive Diablo VT, not a nice car, not a nice car at all. But there were two special editions I drove, one very trick called an SE30, and then there was the Diablo SV, which is almost like the Diablo Club Sport because they'd taken some weight off it and, um, and that sort of thing. And they were just terrific. And you could really get up them and really you know throw mm. them around and enjoy them and um so it's almost like lamborghini have always known how to do this mm. and then right to, you know, towards the end of a, you know, whichever model it is their production line and maybe that's the same with the countess as well with the qvs so they just suddenly go well actually you know <laughs> this is what we you know this is what it should have been all along well yeah what's amazing actually is that they are all the same basic car yeah but with less weight with um some really deft chassis tuning yeah. Um, some other bits and pieces you can they can transform them it's amazing how much you can change the character of a car just by tuning it I mean another, another example and this is another one that I was going to mention in the course of this podcast um, the current Audi R8 mm. 
you know, when they first produced that rear-wheel drive one, it went from being one of the most disappointing... I can remember we doing a group test with Autocar when McLaren 570S came out, and it just came last by such a ridiculous margin, you know, to the point you kind of wonder why it was there. And then the rear-wheel drive one came out, and it was cheaper, and just suddenly it just felt completely together. And yeah. I just thought this is a great, great car. Yeah. Um, and they hadn't done much more than just, you know, made it correct wheel drive. Yeah, it made a big difference to that car. And you can still get them, and they... Yeah, because the first one was a kind of limited edition, wasn't it? It was. Um, and yeah. and that now I think... Uh, then I think it was just really, really popular. So they thought, well, we can flog a few of these. It's, it's a bit awkward for Audi, isn't it? Built its entire brand on Quattro. four-wheel drive, Quattro. Yeah. And yet we all think the best R8 is the one with, without it. Um, yeah. But no, I, I completely agree. Um, okay, let me give you another one of mine. Um, we're moving across Italy, but not very far. Marinello. Or, Maser- no, or Modena. Where are we going? We're, we're, we're going to Marinelli. Okay. Um, Ferrari 360 Spider. Okay. Uh, and what actually sticks out was just how flaky it felt. Mm. It didn't feel robust and solid, like it would last a long time, like you could dish out all manner of treatment to it and it would survive. It felt like a flaky car that was about to fall apart around you if you really pushed it hard. Yeah, well, I haven't driven the Spider, but the, the, you know, the, apart from the last one, again, mm. apart from the Challenge Stradale, which was epic, but that was yeah. almost a racing car. Um, the whole, the 360 just wasn't, they, they just weren't great for, I can remember there was an autocar handling day, we were down at Goodwood, um, and just actually being really spooked by one of these things, mm. um, because they just weren't. They just didn't handle the way I wanted the car to handle. In re- it, it, they were fine. They weren't like a 348, which is probably the worst Ferrari that's ever been made. And I'm probably not going to go on about that here because I've done it before and everybody knows. Um, which would just spin the moment it started to, o- to oversteer. And you couldn't even play about with that in a slow corner. 360 wasn't like that. But in quick corners, I don't know whether it was aero or setup or something. But you just turn into a quick corner, a really, really quick corner, like Ford Water at Goodwood. And just when you wouldn't want it to, mm. it would just start to ever so slightly oversteer. And that yeah. was on turning. And, you know, and you're doing 100 and goodness knows what miles and that. And it's just what, and suddenly all your confidence just goes. And you just find yourself coming around to the same corner the next lap and thinking, I'm just not going to do that again. Mm. I'm not going to go in there at anything like that speed because I don't like being scared. <laughs> um, and at, at which stage, you know, the entire point of having that car on the track is, to, is it has gone. So you're, you're completely right. Um, that's a really good call. Is this the episode that we kind of jumped the shark? Is this the one where we uh, don't realise how lucky we are to get to drive these things? And we so sit we here jumped the shark a long time ago. We jumped the shark about fifty episodes ago. <laughs> but uh, but it's okay to slay some icons, isn't it? And just I think sort it's of important reveal because because truth. I think there I think there's a perception out there that you know that because we get to drive this stuff that there's yeah. kind of we're almost on a band to say tell everyone how wonderful it is, and it's you know and it's not always the case. Mm. And we're doing this because we're in a moment, but we're doing this because we love the the most exotic kinds of cars, and they should be wonderful to drive. Yeah, when they're not, we should call them out. Absolutely. Um, So I hope this doesn't feel or seem entitled or whatever, but I think it's important. So let's let's skip across the border into Germany. Yeah, I'm going to get trouble for this as well. Porsche 964 Carrera RS. Ah. Sorry, Interesting. Dickie. Yeah, Dickie Meaden has one. Yeah. Um, I, think I, I think I've only driven the one that I road tested for Autocar, which was probably 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can remember, I took it down to, this was back in the days when there wasn't a 40 mile an hour speed limit all over Dartmoor. And so we took it down there and shot it down there and did everything else. And I can remember coming back and seeing a sign to Exeter train station and thinking how wonderful it would be just to go to extra train station, get out of this thing and get on the train and take public transport back. And, you know, I'm, you know, there aren't many cars that have made me want to do that. And the point was, you know, on a, on a racetrack, I don't think I've driven one on a racetrack, but I'm sure it's just fabulous. Mm. Uh, and, I'm, and I know that there are things that people have done since it came out to get rid of its one fundamental problem on the road. The fundamental problem on the road was that it is so stiff, um, and particularly if you are of the fuller frame, 
the standard um, seats in it were so uncomfortable. Um, driving the car became a misery. And I don't, you know, I don't say that lightly. I can remember just being really physically uncomfortable in the car all the time because of the seats. And okay, you know, I'm a big bloke, but I'm not, you know, I'm not obese and I'm, you know, I'm only six foot three. So I'm at the sort of upper scale scale of what, you know, anybody might regard as normal. Um, and, and the suspension, I can remember, you know, driving it on quite actually what seemed to me to be quite smooth roads and yet being really worried by every lump and bump you hit because it would physically deflect the car. Mm. You know, the suspension was so stiff, there was so little compliance, that it affected, that the ride affected the handling of the car. Um, and goodness knows what it would have been like if it had been wet, um, particularly on, you know, whatever 30-year-old rubber it would have had on it at the time. Um, so, yeah, and, it, it was, and because it was just meant to be, and don't forget the context, you know, this is like 20 years on after the 2.7 RS, the sort of iconic 911. Um, one of which I'd already driven by then and absolutely adored because it was so usable and so comfortable. And I just thought, they've just got it wrong. They've just made a racing car and put it on the road. And as we know, you know, racing cars on the road are almost as bad as road cars on the, tr- you know, on, on a mm. racetrack. Um, and so, yeah, uh, and I stand by it. I mean, lovely engine, love the dimensions, um, and, and everything else that's good about a 911, but they ruined it with the suspension settings. So there you go. Okay, I'm going to take us to um, a country that you would not guess. You could sit there for 10 minutes and probably not guess this country. But we are hopping over to uh, Eastern Europe. We're going to Bulgaria. Oh, <laughs> crumbs. Yeah. I don't think I've driven a Bulgarian supercar. <laughs> I don't think I, I might, can name a Bulgarian supercar. I might be... I've never seen another story about this car, so I might still be the only car journalist to have driven a Sin R1. If you don't know what that is, just Google it. You'll probably recognise it. I'm sure you've seen it on social media or online somewhere. Um, but it's a curious-looking thing. Um, it's called the Sin R1. Um, now, I don't want to just stick the knife in, because the Sin R1 it really is one bloke um, who's developed his own supercar. And so, of course, it's not as refined as a Ferrari or a McLaren or a Lamborghini. Of course... Um, when I drove it, it wasn't quite finished. Of course, it wasn't as reliable as all that stuff. Um, but, yeah, okay, it had promise because it's, it had a stiff space frame chassis. It had the right kind of suspension. It had, I believe it was a LS crate engine, so a big V8. It had a manual gearbox. Um, and even when I drove it a few years ago, there weren't many cars left in that kind of market with an NA engine and a manual gearbox. So already it had some kind of benefits over the the other cars that you might consider in that bracket um but it just wasn't finished when i drove it so i I only had a few laps on a a short handling circuit um and the steering is super light and quick but also vague and it had so much front end on it that it would just get into a corner but the rear couldn't keep up um and i spun it you know in like a second gear corner just turned in and it just went and i it's a long old time since i've spun a car um without trying to provoke it um, and then before I could sort of begin to get really comfortable with it, it, the thing just started overheating. It was a mega hot day in Bulgaria. The thing just started overheating. Um, and yeah, I mean, things like the interior quality just wasn't there. The fit and finish of the buttons, nowhere near where it had to be. Um, but because it was light, because it had the right kind of powertrain, the engine was in the right place. It had potential. Um, I just don't think that... Sin will ever have the resources or the wherewithal to actually go and realise that potential. Okay, so I, I'm going to mention a, my version of that car. Um, oh. And I'm only going to be brief because no one will have heard of it and nothing came of it. Um, but it was truly epically rubbish. There was a thing called, wait for it, the Covini. <laughs> okay. Do you remember the Covini? No. Okay, Italian supercar. Uh, you'd remember it if you saw a picture of it because it's got six wheels. Bloody that hell. was its thing. Okay, and it didn't four catch the, on then. Four at the front, one, two at the back. Um, and I, I went out to, oh goodness, um, it was one of the longest days of my life, starting actually, and I just wake up in the morning to catch the first light out of Heathrow and discover I lost my passport. But anyway, I found it. Went out there. Um, it wasn't working when we arrived. They finally got it going. Got it out on the road. We must have driven, I don't know, five miles. 
and it just broke down and that was it we'd taken like two photographs and i had to cobble together some kind of dry story out of it and it was just one of those it's just one of those cars where you know somebody's got an idea for doing something which you know looks quite cool but has absolutely no idea at all about the realities of doing it and it was such a cobbled together mess of the thing and they're quite nice materials they use but none of them fitted properly you couldn't fit in the car um you know it was always going to break down i was amazed frankly by the time we got out there and i saw the car that it worked at all um didn't for long and that was the end of the covini what was the point of the the six wheels look cool that was it okay okay. there are all sorts of arguments for six wheelers you can have like you know additional contact patch additional swept area of your brakes smaller wheels means you can have a lower bonnet line therefore you can get more front that's all nothing to do with it they just thought it looked cool Mm. do you remember the panther six yeah yeah there you go well it's that sort of thing but i never drove panther six so i couldn't say whether that was rubbish or not but this definitely was (laughs) (laughs) okay um well we don't have too much longer so do you want to give us um one or two more from your list well, okay, so this is going to be, um, well, I know you've driven the race version, you loved it, uh, Maserati MC12, mm. road car, and lovely engine, cool looking thing, just terrible steering, mm. just so light and so lacking in feel, and I say it again and again and again, if you're lucky enough to drive this stuff, actually, you know, a dream drive can turn into a nightmare if you have no confidence in the thing, yeah, if you end up just yeah. having to drive it slowly because you don't know what the front end's doing and you, do, you just can't feel the car, uh, particularly with cars that are so wide and so difficult to see out of and take up so much space on the road and are so fast. You have to know exactly. And it's one of, it's one of the reasons, I, you know, and I'll say this freely, um, you know, I love McLarens is because <clears throat> they are so comfortable so they don't get deflected by bumps. You can see out of them. Um, you always know where you are. They have hydraulic steering, so the feel is fantastic. And you know, and and, and this was kind of like the opposite of that. Um, so, yeah, that wasn't great. I'll never forgive. I'll never forgive the Jaguar XJR15 for not fitting in it. Ah, so dreadful. I that How could car. they? <laughs> I take that car because I've never driven one. Because I literally, I went to one. Um, you know, I'm a, and it never even occurred to me that someone could build a road car that, okay, quite a tall bloke, but, you know, not a giant, literally wouldn't be able to physically fit in. I think mm. it's the only road car that I've not been able to drive. I think Henry drove one recently. How did he drive one? He must have just been more determined than you because he's a tall bloke. No, I couldn't drive it. <laughs> I wasn't safe. I couldn't get my feet on the pedal. You know, I couldn't get my feet. You know, I think my feet went behind the bed. Well, maybe they took the seat out of the one he was uh, in. I think, maybe. yeah, because there were road cars and there were race cars. And if it was a race car and it just maybe had a bit of, you know, stuff molded to the tub, that would, because it's based on the Group C chassis, the XJR9 mm. chassis. Um, and I can drive those if I have to. So if I have to, of course, I'm not. But no, uh, you know, they're not very comfortable, but I can do it. But I can't drive an XGR15. Well, there you go. Crap right. supercars. They yeah. are out there. I think hopefully we've called out a few of them. Um, we spend long enough, don't we, talking about wonderful supercars. So yeah. why not talk about some rubbish ones as well? Um, okay. All right. Well, let's um, move on to Bonhams after this. As a car journalist, I spend lots of time far from home in airports and hotels using whatever Wi-Fi network is available. But I've started using NordVPN to protect my devices and data while traveling. It's easy to use. And best of all, I can still watch streaming services when I'm not at home. I can't tell you how annoying it is to be told I can't watch a Grand Prix or catch up on Top Gear just because I'm overseas. But now I can be halfway around the world and make websites and streaming platforms think I'm back at home in Bristol. We've partnered with NordVPN to offer you a massively discounted rate, and I mean more than 60% off the standard cost, plus four months for free. It's a hell of an offer. If you've been meaning to check out VPNs but haven't got around to it, just go and try NordVPN now. That's N-O-R-D-V-P-N. Take advantage of this offer at nordvpn.com forward slash intercooler. Or you can click on the link in the description of this podcast. There's a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can try NordVPN risk-free. Right, let's get back to the podcast. Later this week, Bonhams has another one of its big auctions, this time in Paris. Le Grand Marc du Monde à Paris. Um, Paul Darville, sorry, I've butchered that. Uh, You speak immaculate French, as we've just been hearing. Um, Paul, you are head of collector's cars department 
So does that mean that you're in charge of finding the really special collectible cars to consign? Absolutely. Well, a bit of that and managing the sales as well, uh, looking after the team and making sure that uh, as, a, as a group and as an organization, we're uh, finding those cars and importantly, of course, selling them, uh, which is what this week's going to be all about. Thanks for taking the time to join us and to talk about some of the, the stunning lots that will be going up for sale later this week. Um, head to bonhams.com if you want to know more. The auction gets going on the 1st of February, runs through to the 2nd of February. Um, and, and what we're on here talking about is a, a really very small fraction of all the stuff. I mean, looking through it, from all this, everything that you got from the pre-war era up to, you know, quite contemporary race cars, Formula One cars, that sort of stuff, it really does, you know, if you're, if you're really into the, if you're, what doesn't really matter what area you're into, there's going to be something there of interest, isn't there? Absolutely. We've got nearly 200 cars being sold uh, two days this week. Um, collection sale on the 1st, which is a single owner collection, principally pre-war there, which, as you say, Andrew, and, uh, and motorbikes as well. And then the main sale, a little bit more modern, but there must be something in there for every taste, I think. Can I, can I just ask, what, what sort of qualifies a car as being fit for sale by Bonhams? Do you have any sort of, because presumably there, there, there are an awful, somebody came to you with, I don't know, a 19... 87 Ford Orion 1.6 LX, you'd you, you probably go, thanks, but no thanks, wouldn't you? I, I suppose, you know, 20 years ago, we would have talked about classic cars, or even 10 years ago. Now we talk about collectability. Yeah. Um, so you do see cars in there. There's a there's a, an Audi RS4 in there, a nice, uh, nice example, low mileage, yeah. um, you know, a relatively normal car, I suppose. Um, but a nice low mileage one is not something that's easy to come by. And if we feel that it's something that our clientele are interested in, a compliment to the rest of their collection um we'll, we'll we'll consider it for auction it's all about that collectability element i think that's probably the defining feature so this one is in paris tell me how how does this auction compare to a goodwood or a monterey sale does it have a sort of specific character this sale well first of all this sale is the biggest sale that bonds has ever put together oh, wow. in europe um so our low estimate is just around 40 million euros um Historically, Paris has always been a really significant sale for us and, of course, some of our competitors because of Retromobile. Yeah. And it's always been an auction that historically for Bonhams has been quite pre-war focused. Uh, we wanted to keep that element in this auction because I think it's an important part of what Bonhams does. It's, we're probably one of the few auction houses that can honestly say in Europe we have a, a speciality in the pre-war market. But we are also looking to reflect changes in the market, changing demand, and, and also bringing some of those more contemporary collectible cars. And then the final element this year, which I think we're going to talk about, is having Formula One cars in there, mm. uh, which ties in very nicely with our, our partnership with F1 Paddock Club. So it's, um, it, it, it is, by virtue of its scale, quite a diverse sale, but there is that, still that theme of collectability and quality that should run through it. Well, let's get stuck in with Formula One right away then. Um, and I think this probably is the star consignment of the whole, the whole sale. 1991 Jordan 191. Um, this is the car that Michael Schumacher uh, made his F1 weekend debut in. He drove this car in first practice at the Spa, um, at the Belgian Grand Prix at Spa in 1991. Um, and do you want to give us a bit of background, Andrew? So here's this young German kid who's done a bit of sports car racing. Um, he arrives with a big reputation already in this gorgeous Jordan. Yeah, I mean, happened. basically, we, we owe it all to a bloke called Bertrand Gachot, um, who had that drive before Michael and then got into a spot of bother with a London taxi driver and was <laughs> at the time detained at what was then Her Majesty's Pleasure. Um, and EJ needed um, someone to come and pedal his car. Um, and I think I'm right in saying, Paul, you may or may not know this, I don't think that, uh, that Michael Schumacher had been to Spa before. Um, and he, he came over and he got in this thing and he had this um, extraordinary performance um, in qualifying. I think the car didn't finish the race, did it? No, it was um, a burst of uh, exuberance and, and, and raw talent, I think, as, yeah. uh, in, in qualifying. Um, but it was enough for... Flav, Flavio Briatore, to take one look at this bloke and think, wow, um, we've got to have him. Um, and without wishing to put too fine a point on him, he nicked him from under Eddie's nose, didn't he? Um, and then that was, you know, that was Michael at Benetton and the rest is history. But, I mean, you know, this is a massively significant car. Um, but it's also, I think, if you go and look at it, it's a stunningly beautiful car too. 
And the other thing, which most cars, Formula One cars of that era can't claim, it works, doesn't it? No, exactly. It's got great get in it and have a go. Yeah, no, exactly. It's good looking, great era, iconic livery. It's 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 look. It's a very complicated racing car, but you're still, uh, I suppose, in a semi pre digital era. Yeah. Um, it's 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 something that is on a budget. We have to be honest, uh, but yeah. but usable. Um, and what an important part of, uh, of of Schumacher's career and 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 the story around him, and of course, therefore, F1 history. Um, I think it's a great great thing. Um, and it's it's relatively rare that something of that significance comes up on the market uh, at all. I mean, to me, it's actually it's far more significant than, say, I don't know, a Ferrari or a Benetton in which he actually won a race because, you know, he won a great deal of races. But there's only you know, one weekend where he made his debut. Um, and this, you know, this is absolutely, you know, where the legend of, Michael Schumacher, the Formula One driver, began this very car, this very item, which to me gives it a uh, a significance um, and a specialness um, that you know even cars in which he went on to achieve far greater success don't have. Absolutely, there are, I mean, lots, I suppose, of, there are lots of those. Exactly, I suppose there's always a, a desire to own a uh, a Formula One winning car, uh, you know, a race winning car. Yeah, um, but this car is in the story, as I say, in the in the in, in the legend, the building, the legend of Jumaica, of, of far more significant, and it's unique. There can only be one, um, so it's an important thing. So it's uh, as you, as we've said, it is a sensational looking thing. I think it's often held up the Jordan One Nine One as the best looking Formula One car of all time. I'm not going to dispute that. I think it looks gorgeous, um, and it is a runner, as we've mentioned, and we know this because uh, Mick Schumacher, Michael's son drove it at Silverstone, I think last year, with our mate Karun Chandok. He drove it as well. Um, your estimate for the car is 1.4 to 2 million euros. Is that conservative? Is there a chance it might go for more? Do you think that's about on the nose? I think there's a chance it could go for more. I think you, it's, a, it's a unique piece uh, with a unique story. You put it, when you're valuing a car, I suppose you put it into context around it. You look and say, what is a Grand Prix winning Schumacher for a Ferrari worth these days? You come in with a figure and you do use that as your high watermark and work back. But I think when you stack it up against a Grand Prix winning Ferrari from his career, this looks like tremendous value. And, and for somebody that's really passionate about Schumacher and about Formula One in this era, it's it's a very very special thing so it's one of the fascinating moments where i think an auction is so interesting because it's not something quantifiable um you you take your markers you make your judgment but ultimately the market has to speak uh, and that's what we're um, we're here to do to uh, to hear this week and do you have a sense of what the winning buyer might do with it does it sit in someone's living room looking very pretty or does it get thrashed around spa what do you think I think these days there is a growing trend towards people using these cars. I think younger collectors uh, want to use them, want to drive them. There's better support uh, for these vehicles than there ever was 10, 20 years ago. Um, So I I, I think there's a high probability that this car will return to track in some way. Whether it's ever raced hard is another matter, but I think it will uh, uh, come back into the public eye. Brilliant. I look forward to seeing what the 1991 Jordan 191 goes for. Um, such a significant car. But let's move it away from the racetrack to the road. The second car that we want to talk about, Andrew, is an early Ferrari F40. Now, can you explain the significance of a non-catalyst, non-adjustable F40? Well, I mean, they're just regarded to be the the purest. I mean, obviously, you don't need me to explain why, you know, not having a catalytic converter on the car um, mm. you know, makes it appear. And um, not having the, the adjustable front suspension was basically just a suspension lift which they put on the car to allow it to get onto, you know, sort of cross-channel ferries and that sort of thing. Uh, and I think, Paul, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the market regards those as being the sort of, because I guess the F40 was such a pure car, the purest of the of the pure. And, and what interests me about this car is it's guiding at 2.2 to 2.7 million euros. Um, and I've just watched the value of these cars. I was yeah. once offered an F40 about, oh, I don't want to think about it, about 20 <laughs> years ago. Um, not that I could have afforded it then, let alone now. But I can remember thinking to myself, well, they're never going to be worth a huge amount of money because they made quite a few. They made about 1,300 cars compared to, yeah. I don't know, a 288 GTO where they made 272 or whatever. 
Um, and I got that wrong, didn't I? Um, <laughs> so, so, Paul, what is what is it about the about the F forty, which is just I mean, the prices seem to me to have you know doubled over the last few years, or is it this particular car so special? I think the prices have doubled. I think in the last two three years, um, yeah. I think that's partly generation, it's partly fashion, but you also need to consider, I suppose, thirteen hundred cars built. But once you knock out all the F40s that have had bumps, that have had incidents, fires, been repainted, yeah. if you're looking for a really great F40, yeah. you're down into the hundreds probably. Yes, so, and, and alongside growing demand. So I, I think the, the growth in prices is, is, is understandable in that sense. Um, it's also, it's funny, we talk, said we were moving away from the track. Um, an F40 is not so far away from the track, is it? It's, <laughs> it's, it's quite mad that somebody actually built that as a road car in the late 80s. Um, and, and I don't think you would get away with it now, uh, of course. Um, it, it's, it's barely road legal in some respects, isn't it? Yeah. I, remember, um, I remember that Enzo Ferrari quote about it. Somebody asked him what it was like, and he replied, and this is the, this is the ultimate sort of PR nightmare quote. He said, it's so fast you'll shit yourself. Yeah, Enzo I think that's probably that. fair. And, and uh, he must—he must have been about eighty-nine at the time that he said it. Um, and I just, um, and, and, and also, yeah, the fact is that you know, lots of people haven't there. Lots, particularly lots of motoring journalists, uh, myself included, have just gone out and said over the years that despite all the, you know, the amazing hypercars and this, that, and the other that come along, that actually, you know, faced with you know your last driving, your last car, and your last road, you just go and get an F forty because they uh-huh. are just so wonderful. And so you are partly responsible for the reason why uh, none of us can afford an F40, Andrew. So really... uh... (laughs) Okay, let's move it along on then. So we've gone from an early F40 to a late Porsche Carrera GT. Right, now this I consider to be my era. I've I've only driven one very briefly, thanks to our friend Andrew um, and business partner who happens to have a Carrera GT. Um, But so the reason I say it's my era is because I was reading about these cars in the magazines when I was... Um, I don't know, a teenager. And I just thought they were spectacular then. I think they're even more spectacular now. Um, Paul, tell us a little bit about this Carrera GT. It looks like a very, very low mileage example. It is indeed. It's, um, as you get into these modern supercars, uh, mileage is important. People really look for um, the, 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 the least used, the closest to production. Uh, they are it's funny, you do, there's a definite link with the F40 there. Why uh, the low mileage F40s in great condition are worth considerably more than a, uh, a higher mileage used example. And so collectors looking at buying Carrera GTs are looking at these cars now through the prism of F40s and, and that type of car as well. So they're looking to buy the best. Um, I suppose in some ways, a Carrera GT is a bit of a spiritual successor to an F40 as well. Um, yeah, highly, yeah, highly developed, essentially race focused car for the road um i had a client who had an f40 who sold it and bought a carrera gt and said it, it was the only car he could think of that reminded him uh, in a much more refined way an engineered yeah. way of, of the of, of the f40 so it's it's a different sort of buyer um we tend to sell these cars to be absolutely honest with you to people who don't use them because they're looking to preserve them uh as they are they are people that want to build collections that are complete uh, and they're looking to buy the best and that's where you see these low mileage examples also increasing value quite um, quite dramatically yeah because I, I guess if you know if you buy one of these super low mileage examples you're almost you almost can't use it can you because the reason you got it goes away it becomes it doesn't become a super low mileage. if you go and put ten thousand miles on it you know, because you you know use it as your daily driver and you take it across europe and that sort of thing you have a lot of fun but you're seriously damaging um the collectability of the car aren't you you are, you are, and I think we are. We, we do have clients that who buy two. You know, buy <laughs> find me a beautiful, yeah. perfect one that I'm going to put in my garage, and I'd also like one if you can find me one that's got lots of miles and it's had an accident. That would be great because I want to use it too. Yeah. Um, it's a talk about um, yeah, <laughs> a particular range of problems there, um, but it is a reality that these cars, unlike I think the Jordan in some ways, that stands a fair chance of being used. Bizarrely, the Carrera GT, essentially designed for the road. Uh, will probably not be used uh, by its next Fascinating. owner. The, let me just jump in. The Carrera GT is guiding at 1.4 to 1.8 million, um, which actually is almost exactly the same estimate for the Jordan 191, which, I don't know, that reveals something about the state of the market, doesn't it? The cars that are really cherished, because here we have a one-off, irreplaceable Formula One car with an amazing backstory, 
um, listing for much the same as a Porsche Carrera GT, one of 1,270 built, um, albeit a low mileage, low mileage example. It's just curious that the rarity of the, the Jordan doesn't somehow make it worth 10 times more the, the Carrera GT. I just find it interesting. I suppose broader appeal of the road cars, um, yeah. bigger, bigger. You know, there are multiple motivations for people that buy a Carrera GT. If you're buying a Jordan Formula One car, it really is passion, I think, largely, uh, that's likely to drive that purchasing decision. And thank goodness that's still a, a factor in in, uh, in the market. We talk about prices a lot, but I think we're, we're really lucky, all of us, to work in a business that is still fundamentally a hobby and fundamentally a hobby that's driven by enthusiasm for the product. But when you get into Carrera GTs and, and those types of modern cars, you do have people who are looking at it maybe through a slightly more investment-driven mm. uh, frame. Um, and that, that, that you do see that differentiation in price. It makes it exciting as well. I think there are still uh, in a rising market and in a market that's already risen an awful lot, yeah. exciting things that you can buy that are comparatively cheaper than you might expect. Andrew, do you want to give us another? Well, I'll take, can we just do? There's, there's, um, well, there, there are two more portions of this, but we may not get to the other one. Um, there's a 964 Turbo um, on here, um, the liked bow, if I haven't pronounced that appallingly as well. And you know, 964 Turbo, so like the ultimate version of the 964, so still rear drive, still single turbo, um, you know, massive boost, massive lag, um, proper handful to drive. Um, I remember because I, yeah, I, I used to knock about them a bit. Um, million euros. Is that because this is a very, very, very special example of that car? Or, was, or, or does that reflect, reflect the fact that these cars are now just generally becoming much more revered? That reflects general market trend, I think. And, and again, if you find the one that's relatively low mileage, um, hasn't had an accident, um, yeah. again, <laughs> you can probably knock out a size. <laughs> Imagine that 964 turbos. I think that's probably a fairly small minority of cars that haven't been backwards off or something at some stage. Exactly. And you get those. So the 964s had a real increase in values. We're starting to see it in 993s as well. Yeah. Um, that's partially driven by the fact the US didn't get that many of these cars. Mm. And now at 25 years, they can go to the States. Uh, and so that, that always has an impact on pricing because the US is still a big, big driver of the classic car market. Um, and I think the car, it's a special car. It's, it's a, an end of, bit of an end of an era. Okay, the 993 was your last air cooled, but the 964, still in the way it was fabricated, the conception is very, very close, isn't it, to, a, to the original 911. Yeah, and, and um, also particularly with the turbo. You know, the 964 yeah. turbo, even the 993 turbo is a very sophisticated car, twin turbocharged, four-wheel drive, um, you know, a, a completely different animal to an i64 turbo. And if you really want um, that sort of big, brawny, scare yourself senseless 911, you know, the 964 turbo is pretty much the ultimate example of that before Porsche suddenly thought, mm, might have gone a bit far here. Um, <laughs> and actually, you know, put two little turbos on there rather than one big one and drove it at both ends and calmed the whole thing down a bit. So I think that yes. for a certain sort of customer, it, it is a kind of ultimate. It is, yeah, absolutely. No, it's it's the ultimate of that, yeah, re- relatively analog, uh, well, really analog. Actually, when you look at it, as you say, yeah. it's, it's it's fundamentally a very very developed uh, version of of a much much earlier car. Um, so, and, and, and interestingly, and it has a certain look. The styling, the nine six four styling, I think maybe that's me personally. There was a point where I I didn't like that, and I think now, particularly alongside the larger modern sports cars that are produced by Porsche and Ferrari. These cars look so small and nimble mm-hmm. and, and they, look, they look quite elegant in a way they just didn't 10 years ago. Um, Paul, to wrap things up, is there one more car uh, that you want to pull out for us to have a quick natter about? Um, Andrew knows that I like French cars. I think you like French cars as well. And we are in Paris. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So um, th- th- there's always a car. We, we always talk in the team, which car are we going to take home from the auction, the dream world? Uh, and for me on this one, there is a, a black Renault 5 Turbo. Turbo Ooh. 2, actually. Uh, but with a Turbo One interior from the factory. Oh, very nice. Uh, yeah, there we are. Which was uh, specified delivered um, uh, specified um, by a member of the Altani family who particularly wanted that Turbo One interior in it. Which, which, um, which and, was quite a mad interior, wasn't it? If you go, I mean, a Turbo oh, yeah. Two interior is like pretty standard Renault Five with a boost gauge. Turbo One interior looks like a concept car, doesn't it? It's a it's uh, a really really bonkers interior. Totally bonkers. That like offset central steering wheel, almost sort of like Citroen esque steering wheel yeah. in there. Uh, the inset dials and the seats, which 
yes, look like they've stepped straight out of a sort of a TGV train circa 1980, uh, sort of striped and mixtures of materials in there. I mean, terribly built, obviously, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but rather a fabulous thing of its era. You know, it's, it's not the most valuable car in the sale. Um, but it's a bit of a cult car, and, and I like the unique specification of that. So, well, and what, what, what's, say, the, what's that? What's that guiding at? We're just over a hundred thousand euros on that. Okay. Um, so, again, finding a, a, a good example of a Renault Five Turbo One or Two is, is not as easy as it was. Those sort of homologation cars, the eighties, like the F Forty, uh, that everything of that era has come up. Yeah. Um, and I suppose that is at the more accessible end of it. And, um, and, and I guess a few of those have been through hedges as well. So having a, a, a nice unmolested version. The other, thing, the other thing about the is, is this a complete? Is this a standard car, or has it been tweaked? Because so many of them got got sort of tuned up, didn't they? Because I think they had like 160 horsepower from that 1.4 liter pushrod Renault engine as standard. But you know, you see lots of cars saying that they've got over 200 horsepower and this sort of thing. And is, is, is this a sort of car that's been worked on or is it pretty much as it as, as this it... one's standard factory tune uh, which i suppose for a collector is is what more, you want. more desirable yeah. um yeah. I, i've never actually driven a five turbo uh, i imagine fairly um terrifying when it comes on the boost uh, but, um, um yeah, yeah I, I i i i have driven one and yes it's 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 another one of those sort of um all nothing machines um definitely and obviously very very short wheelbase um, I think when they were new, they also came on those um, Michelin TRX tyres, which were quite challenging all by themselves. So, yes, you, you could get yourself into a world of pain in them, but an amazing looking car. And it's just one of those cars. I just think it's just it's just so great that they exist. Same with the Clio V6. It's just, you know, it's just wonderful that somebody thought that's a good idea. We'll do that. Um, and obviously there's that great rallying heritage to go with it. And yeah, cracking car. Yeah. So if you want to terrify yourself, we've got something for you at Bonhams. Fear not. <laughs> at, every, at every price point. That's the new strap line, isn't it? Um, so Bonhams.com, if you want to know more, there is a link in the description. Um, this sale runs from 1st to 2nd of February later on this week. Um, Paul, good luck with it all, and thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Many thanks Thank indeed. you very much. Bit of real pleasure. Yeah, thanks a lot. All the best. Bye, bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.